Now for the third time, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And I anticipate this will be the third of four sermons on these verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And and hear God's word. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And let us pray together. Uh, Holy Father, this is a great text, perhaps the greatest, although it seems we could say that almost of any verse in the Bible. But as we're considering these, so we'll say it of these. Father, we love these verses. Many of us have memorized them. And we feel as though they're worthy of a rich study, of a deep dive. We ask you, Holy Father, that you would enable us by your spirit to behold the glory of your son in these verses. We ask you that we would be enabled to worship you, indeed to worship you through the preaching and the hearing of the preaching, and that you would be glorified in this way. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been pondering these verses together, looking at them very closely, considering its argument, considering especially its relevance to the believer, which Paul has been describing ever since chapter 5, verse 1, Those who have been justified by faith uh, or having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And and on he goes. And he's still he's still painting the picture of the believer, the privileges and the blessings of the believer. And as we've been doing that, so now we come to verses twenty nine through thirty. Those two. We've looked at verse twenty eight. We're beginning to look at their outworking in verses twenty nine and thirty. What is at stake in these verses The central truth for the believer to grasp, not so much about himself, about himself in a secondary way, but primarily about God himself, is his plan, the plan of God, the purpose of God. The believer, someone says at the end of verse 28, who's been called according to purpose. And in verses 29 and 30, Paul outlines what that purpose is, what that purpose was, how it works itself out, how it resolves itself at the end of the age. So that's what we're considering together here. We're looking first at the plan of God. That's something we we were considering last time. I was well, I was trying to describe it and I was telling you certain things that were true as a result of it, because it's God's plan. uh, It means this and it means that and so on and so forth. But here I want to look at uh, the plan of God in light of. What Paul says specifically in verse 29, he states it in the middle of uh, these five steps or five stages in what we call the ordo salutis or the order of salvation or, or, or William Perkins called it the golden chain of salvation. So they're not just steps, but they're links in the chain and each link is linked to each other by uh, by an unbreakable bond. But before we look at the unfolding of that, we need to see the overarching Purpose, as it is stated here in the midst of those links in verse 29, where he says that those whom he has called, he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
So we ask the question, what is the Lord setting out to do? As he planned out our salvation, as he executes our salvation, as he brings it to completion, what's the great end that he's seeking? God sees the end from the beginning. And as he plans it out, as he's uh, as he's crafted his plan, so to speak, in his great mind. What is that end? Well, the plan is twofold, the first of which there, there, there is, uh, we could say, a master purpose and a secondary purpose. The secondary purpose is stated first. The first is to be conformed to the image of his son. I would call that God's plan for the believer. Now, I'm saying that's secondary. I'll clarify that in a moment. God's plan for the believer is that the believer whom he has foreknown, predestined, and so on, is that he would be conformed to the image of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. But we need to be even more specific than that. We need to consider what it was that the Son of God himself did. Because the initiative in this verse and in all that Paul is saying in these three verses has to do with what God has done, what God is doing. And we need to recognize that the way in which we have been made or the way in which we are to be made conformed to the image of the Son began with him being made like us in the incarnation. It was he who took hold of our humanity. It was he who came down upon this earth to execute the great plan of God. It was he who was pleased in becoming one like us to call us brothers. And so the fact that we are his brothers comes solely at his initiative. It was the fact that he not only befriended us and became one like us, but that he, as it were, brought us into his family. And in that sense, you see, he's already made us like him. He's already begun to conform us to himself. For we, like he now, uh, are the sons of God. Paul's already said that. In that sense, the, the seed of the new life of God, we've not only been born again, we've been adopted. How? Well, by the Spirit. And the result of that is that we are uh, the sons of God and even the brothers of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is that in a sense, in an initial sense, we've already been made like him. We share his resemblance. We're his followers. We're, dis- we're his disciples. We are being conformed to him now in his sufferings. You see, that's already happening. Paul has said that uh, in verse 17. That's the present lot of the believer. Why is the believer made to suffer for the present? Well, because he's being conformed to the image of the Son. He's being made like Jesus Christ in his sufferings for the present time. Not only that, he's destined to be conformed to him in his glory. And that's the great thing. When Paul says that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, he's saying that in every sense, but really in the ultimate sense, the destiny of the believer, the great thing that God has set out to do, the great thing that he's planned from all eternity is that the believer would be made like the Son in his resurrection. That as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that as his body was glorified in the resurrection, so our bodies will be glorified. They will be made like unto his. That's what Paul says in Uh, Philippians chapter 3. Let me read that verse. Philippians chapter 3 verse 21. Speaking of uh, Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is even 
able to subdue all things to himself. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. How so in his resurrection will be glorified, Paul is saying. And that glorification will include the redemption of our bodies after the image of Jesus Christ. You see, our bodies will not only be glorious, but they'll be glorious because they'll be like his. Just imagine that. And nothing less than that is the hope of the believer and the plan of God. But that's really the secondary thing. That's subsidiary to the main thing. The main thing is stated as the second purpose, which is this. He says, whom he, for, uh, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed in the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, I would call this God's plan for the Son. And that's really the great thing. God's plan for the believer falls under the rubric of God's plan for the Son. Again, in all that we're saying about ourselves and everything that falls out and works out for our good in the immediate sense and especially in the ultimate sense is only true because we fall under the all-embracing plan of God for his own son, which he willed for him in all eternity in what we call the covenant of redemption. You see, this is something that God has willed for all eternity. It's something that he and the son are agreed about. When the son comes into the world, he says, lo, I have come to do your will, father. That's what he's what what he was doing when he came. That's what he was always doing. That's what he's doing now. He's doing the will of the father and what the father is doing. Peter says the father is glorifying the son. Always the son obeys the father. The father glorifies the son. Now, that's evident even in the son uh, being smitten upon the cross. Uh, Though it is a hidden glory, Luther said, it is evident uh, more so in the resurrection when the father raises him from the dead. It it is evident even more so when he ascends into the presence of the father. What is evident for the disciples to see and for us to behold in their preaching? It's the glory of the son. It's not only the glory of the son, but it's the way in which the father is glorifying the son. But it will be seen in in the fullest possible way, even uh, to the whole of the cosmos. The devils will see it. By that, I mean the fallen angels, the devil himself, the unbelievers, and especially will see it when his glory, the glory of God's son, which he determined for him for all eternity, is accomplished when he stands preeminent, not just among the world. We could say that, but we wouldn't be saying enough. It's when he stands preeminent among his brothers. You see, the really amazing thing that Paul is saying is that the glory of the son appears in the presence of his brothers. He came among us. He, he made us brothers along with him. He made us our brothers. And at the end of the age, when he stands supreme and gathers us together with him, Paul says, our life is hid with his, but when he is revealed, will be revealed along with him. It isn't our glory that will appear. It's the glory of the son. It's the way in which his glory appears in the presence of his brothers, those whom he's made his brothers. He's the firstborn. He's preeminent. All glory Praise and honor belongs to him. That's what God is demonstrating. That's his plan. And the thing that we need to see and what I said last time was that once we realize that it is the very glory of the son that is at stake, we understand that there isn't anything in all the world that can ever stand in the way of that. And if my glory is tied to his, my share in his glory is thus assured to me. Yes, I will be glorified to him. I will be conformed to him in his glory, for he is to be glorified 
even as he appears to be chief among many brothers. That's the plan of God. That's the master plan of God. That's the will of God for his son and for the whole world. That's the will of God for you if you're a believer. That's the great thing you need to see. But having seen that, we ask as a second question, how does he execute it? And he does so in five steps, as we see in verses 29 through 30. Uh, Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. That list is not exhaustive, but it's exhaustive enough. It gives us a clear sense of all that God has planned to do for his son and for his brothers. But before we look at those five steps, I want to make a few points about this order of salvation or the ordo salutis in general. And the first thing I would notice is the order of it. Do you notice that? There's a wonderful order to this. The wisdom of God brought to bear upon the plight of man. When you look at this, well, this list, this golden chain of salvation, you cannot help but notice that. You cannot help but adore the wisdom And even, could I say, the logic of God? Do you see how orderly his ways are? Do you see his great wisdom? The great wisdom of God in the the outworking of his plan. The perfect ordering of all. See him uh, executing what he willed in eternity. Is it not wonderful? Do you notice as well the unity? All things. All things conspiring for all time according to his perfect will. Let us see also, it is God who does it. In everything that we are considering, we don't ever read this is man who does it. Not at any point. Everything that is said here, whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, and so on. It's the action of God with respect to the believer. Which which has a way of crystallizing for us the central thrust of, uh, of the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. What's the central thrust of salvation? It isn't man, it's God. What we recognize more than anything else in these verses is that the salvation of man highlights not really the salvation of man, does it? It highlights the sovereignty of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of his will. That's what you see. Also his grace. Don't you see that? That when man is saved, it's all of grace. Don't you see that the the fact that any man was ever saved isn't because, well, he decided to be saved. That isn't the point. We recognize that salvation comes at God's initiative in every case, even those whom he foreknew. You see, he he decided this long ago. He's always, uh, this is a decision that he's, he's made for all eternity. He's always felt this way about the believer. He's always wanted to save him. He's always decided to do so. This is his work in us. It's his work for us. That's how we ought to view salvation, whether we view it as that which is past, that which is present, that which is future. It is that which God does. Another point is that in every case, it is the same people who are being referred to. This is something that we've got to see in Romans chapter eight. Apparently, there are those who read this chapter and say, you know, Paul is describing two kinds of Christians. But there's no way to read these verses and and ever think that. It's clear that Paul is saying that in every case it's the same person. Those whom he predestined are those whom he glorified. And all everything in between. The person who is foreknown is the person who is called. And the person who is called is the person who is justified. The person who is justified is the person who is glorified. These are attributes that describe the believer in various ways. Seen from the standpoint of the plan of God. 
And so there really is no way to separate these blessings. That's Paul's point. Whether you view them from the standpoint of the plan of God and the outworking of that plan or the person who enjoys them. You see, he really isn't describing blessings, but persons. Those whom God foreknew. Those whom he predestined. And the blessings describe the persons. And the reason that is stressed, if it isn't already clear, let me say one more time, is in order that the believer might enjoy assurance. That's the great thing in chapter 8, if not the great thing in chapter 5 through chapter 8. He wants us to be sure of our salvation. He wants us to see what is true of us. Let us see clearly uh, what God has done for us. Let us see clearly what God's will is for us. And then let us believe it with certainty. Not wavering in unbelief, but like Abraham, being assured that he who promised was able to do what he had promised. You see, once more, what is at stake? It's not me. It's not how I feel. It's not my works. It's simply the will of God. It's the word of God. This is God speaking to the believer. Let the believer see what is true of himself. And seeing that, let him understand. And let him be persuaded That all things are working together for his good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to purpose. Why is that? Well, for this reason, Paul says, isn't it obvious that it must be so? Isn't it obvious that all things must work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose? For after all, he says, whom he predestined, or, or, or whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Do you understand the argument? And then here is, in many ways, the most crucial point of all. As we look at what is called the golden chain of salvation, Before we ever look at a single link, and you notice we haven't gotten to the links yet, we have to look at the chain first. Think of the chain. And as we see each of these blessings linked to the next, and then the next to the next, and so on, until the chain is complete, we have to ask what it is that links each of these links in the chain together. And there's two answers to the question. The first is obviously God's purpose. It's a matter of his will. We've been seeing that. But the other answer that I must stress as well, and that Paul is really stressing throughout Romans, is Christ himself. In other words, if we ask by whom is God's purpose being realized, the answer is never ourselves, nor is it the blessings themselves. The answer is always Jesus Christ. Always. It's because the believers in him. It's because God's will is being being executed to believers who are in him, even in eternity past. We'll see Paul saying that in Ephesians chapter one. In other words, if we ask the question, if we isolate the particular blessings and ask, how did I ever come by this particular blessing? What was it that led to my my being called of God? What was it that led me to be foreknown of him? What was it that led me? To be justified. The answer is never because I came by the one before it. I do not receive my justification from my calling. 
I do not receive my calling from my predestination. That isn't the point of the golden chain of salvation. We receive justification. We receive all the blessings from Jesus Christ himself. He is, as Robert Haldane says, the great benefactor of our salvation. And the reality, I've been using the language of William Perkins, the golden chain of salvation. Now, I tell you this on the, on the assurance of, of um, Sinclair Ferguson. I admit, I haven't looked at uh, this pictorial catechism that, that Perkins uh, put together. But, but on the assurance of Sinclair Ferguson, I, I say together with Perkins is not, that not only is every blessing linked to the prior as well as to the following, but every individual blessing is linked to Jesus Christ himself. And so it's the plan of God that links them together and forms one chain, and it's Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us, how? In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. What is implicit in Romans 8 is explicit in Ephesians chapter 1. Why is this important to see? Why is it dangerous not to see? Well, it's dangerous for this reason, and it's important for this reason. It's that if I look for any of these blessings, if I'm ever tempted to isolate them, especially justification which is the central concern of Paul in in Romans, and and I think it's fair to say it's the central concern of the believer always. How am I, as a sinner, made right with God? Well, the answer is you'll never find it in yourself, and you won't find it in your calling, as I said. You will only ever find it in Jesus Christ. He is the great benefactor. But we come now to the blessings themselves. What is called the golden chain of salvation. And we notice two subsets here. There, there is what God willed in eternity. The foreknowledge and the predestined, uh, predestinating work of God. And then there is uh, the electing work brought to bear in time. Calling, justifying, and glorifying. I would attach the greatest importance to the first. The foreknowledge and the election of God. We, we look at the first. Those whom he foreknew. What's he talking about here? Well, it's true that everything that ever happens, God knows in advance. And he knows those who are going to be saved are going to be saved. He knows those who are going to believe are going to believe. He knows those who are going to be glorified are going to be glorified. He knows everything in advance. And certainly foreknowledge means that. But foreknowledge also means something more, or at least it's capable of meaning more, and it really does mean more here. You realize Paul is here making a distinction. He isn't speaking of everyone. He's talking about the sons of God, those whom he's called according to his purpose. And it's of them, he says, uh, that all things work together for good. And it is those whom he foreknew. You see, not everyone. It isn't God's general knowledge of everyone. It's something That falls in line with this distinction. If we go a step further in the argument. Those whom he foreknew. Are those whom he predestined to be conformed to the glory of his son. And the real question that we have here is. What is it that accounts for this distinction? 
What is the ultimate explanation for it? Is it something in myself or is it something in God? And the answer which Paul makes here is that it's something in God. For the foreknowledge of God uh, means not only his knowledge of all things in advance, but it also means something like uh, a, a distinguishing love which he has for certain persons. Something like election in that sense. It's the electing eternal love of God. You you think of what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Now he says that to one class of people, he says something else to another class of people. What's he saying? He's saying, well, he isn't saying, I didn't know anything about you, and so you're damned. When he says, I never knew you, he says, in essence, I never set you apart as mine. You never belonged to me. And so depart from me, you evil workers of iniquity. To be known of God is to be loved of God. It is to be distinguished uh, as, out of the sinful lump as, as the objects of his love. And you ask, why is that? Is it because he foresaw anything in us? No. You're missing the point here. Because there's nothing behind the foreknowledge of God. This is his good pleasure. This is his will. You ask the question, what is it that makes him make the distinction? Well, you, you can't ask a question like that. It's just a matter of his will. What accounts for the difference, therefore, between those who are called according to his purpose and those who are not is the foreknowledge of God. You see, it isn't passive, to use Murray's language. It isn't passive, but active. It isn't God uh, sitting back in eternity, looking forward into the future and saying, well, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what he will do. Oh, now I see it. Oh, he'll be a believer. That, you see, that's passive. No, this is something active. This is God deciding in advance. This is him setting his love upon us. In love he predestined us in him. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. That's the thought. What makes the difference therefore? It's the foreknowledge of God. It's God himself. That's what distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. Even before we ever came to be. John Murray says, it is not the foresight of difference. But the foreknowledge that makes difference to exist, it is sovereign, distinguishing love. Someone who's been called according to purpose, Paul is saying, is someone whom God has set his love upon from all eternity. Look at how he puts it in Romans chapter 11, verse 2. He says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. You see, if he foreknew them, Paul is saying. He's already distinguished them. He's already set them apart in his plan and his purpose. And he can't very well forget them, can he? And the same thing applies to us. Go beyond that. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. What's the difference between foreknowledge and predestination? And let us be honest. If we were working this out, we would have put predestination before foreknowledge, I think. We say, what's going on here? Why is foreknowledge coming first? Well, I would say foreknowledge has to come first. Because foreknowledge is God making uh, the choice. It's setting his love or his heart upon us. Though he sees us in sin. He sees us as we will be in Adam. No, he sees us now in Christ. Even from eternity. From the standpoint of his will. From the standpoint of his plan. The believer even eternity is in Christ. Something he's decided But predestination has to do with our destiny. Do you notice that in the word itself? 
predestination. It's the destiny he's decided in advance, having set his love upon particular persons in Christ. So he determines something for them. He prepares them for it. He sets out the path for them. You think of what Jesus says, I go to the Father and I prepare a place for you. That's the thought. It's waiting for the believer. It's the thought of an inheritance. It's been prepared for him. It's waiting for him. Where did this begin to be? Well, even in the plan of God. God willed the end from the beginning. That's the thought. Having set his love upon us, so he destined us for certain things. In love, he predestined us for the adoption as sons, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. You see, that's the outworking of his plan. Even as he loved us from all eternity, so he decided he destined that we would, be, uh, we would be sons. Even beyond that, he destined that we would be conformed to the image of a son. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. You see, God's love, let us see again, is not that which is passive. He doesn't just decide good things for us. He doesn't decide, I feel good about these people. It's the most active thing in all the world. He says, I'm going to do everything for you. I'm going to make certain of your salvation and your full salvation. I guarantee it. I promise it to you. It's certain to you. Why? Because I will do it. That's what God is saying. That's what makes the believer's salvation certain from first to last. It is the active, all-embracing love of God for the believer in Christ. God has already decided it, and so it will be. Who can stand in the way? Let us go on. Those whom he has predestined, he's also called. Well, again, we ask, what's he talking about here? Well, he's already spoken of this, and now he speaks of it again. He says, uh, to those who are called according to his purpose, that's verse 28. Now in verse 30, he says, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. It's the same persons in view. Again, we are considering not the general indiscriminate call of the gospel, which goes out to all men, believe in the gospel and be saved. All who come to me will be saved, Jesus says. All who are weary and heavy laden, that's the outward call of God. That isn't what we're talking about here. We're talking about what is called the effectual call of God, the call which is according to purpose, the call which comes to the believer whom God has foreknown and predestined. Now that plan is brought to bear upon him in his experience. It meets him in time. Salvation, uh, as I say, is not only uh, a plan, but it's an experience. You think of Jesus coming to certain men and he says, follow me. What we notice in that in that call, and, and it's what any believer who's ever been saved has experienced himself. It, it, it's not just an invitation. It's a command. And when that command comes to the believer who was foreknown and predestined, it comes with power. It changes him completely. It sweeps him up into the, the whole company of disciples. He becomes aware in that very moment of the foreknowledge and the predestination of God. He realizes that he's been called according to purpose. Now that purpose is being realized in him. You see, of course, God, if he foreknew us and if he predestined us, of course, he's going to call us unto himself effectually. He's going to take the sinner who's at enmity towards him, the sinner who is lost in sin, enslaved to sin, and he's going to set him free. There's no way to stop God in this. He does it by making us new. He renews our minds. He renews our wills. He doesn't force us into the kingdom. He doesn't strong arm us. He makes us willing and glad to come in 
by giving us new, a new heart and new affections and new desires and a new mind. Suddenly we see the glory of the Savior. Suddenly we see the love of God in the Savior. And we don't just come in, we run in. We are glad to be saved at the hand of Jesus Christ. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Do you notice, let me just say again, and I'm going to keep saying it. It's God who does this. It isn't the Christian. I said this earlier, but I don't, I, I, I don't hesitate to say it here. The Christian is not someone who decided to be a Christian. Here's a man who was born a hater of God. The carnal mind is enmity toward God. But when God calls him, you see, it's God who makes him a Christian. And it was God in eternity past who decided that he would be a Christian. Go beyond that. Those whom he called, he also justified. And Paul is speaking of justification all through Romans. It's the central concern of Romans. that The thing that he wants us to be clearest about. The thing that clarifies more than anything else. Whether from the standpoint of the Ordo Salutis. Or the relation of uh, Christianity to Judaism. Or just my desire to be right with God. The thing that clarifies The sovereignty of God and the grace of God in the believer's salvation. You see, as God is the one who calls us, so he's the one who justifies us. It's not a matter of works. It isn't a matter of what the believer does. Not ever. Not in eternity, not in time, not not in eternity to come. God never looks on us and says, well, as soon as you're good enough, then I will declare you to be righteous. Then I will see you as he who is righteous. No. God is saying, Just as soon as I've called you and just as soon as I've engrafted you into Christ, my son. It is just at that very moment that I regard you both now and forever as righteous in him. The believer is not only forgiven, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to him. He's declared to be righteous in Christ. Not as a matter of what he does, but as a matter of what God does. Those who are justified are glorified once again. You see how it's stated in the past. It's something that's certain. It's as good as done. You see how it's connected to a believer's justification. Those who are justified are sure to be glorified. There is no way to be justified and not be glorified. If you're justified now, well, I say to those who say, you know, there's a second justification. There's a justification according to works at the end of, uh, of the age. You're held in suspense. There's no way to be sure of your salvation. That's the Roman Catholic doctrine, for instance, but there are even, sadly, Protestants who say that. They miss the whole point here, the whole thrust of the argument. To be justified is to be glorified already. It's sure to the believer. There's no way to go back on this now. The thing is certain. If God regards you now as righteous, he will glorify you, surely. It's the final outworking of the plan. It's when the plan is complete, uh, let us see, when we are conformed to the image of the Son. And we're not only justified here in time, but we are openly acknowledged and acquitted before all men on the last day. What's the conclusion? What's the impression we're left with in light of all of this? Those who are, who are foreknown of God are predestined as well. And those who are predestined are called. Those who are, pre, who are called are justified. Those who are called are glorified. Well, let us see uh, that this... This great plan of salvation and the fact of salvation in our experience highlights nothing in man. It robs man entirely of boasting. That's always what Paul says. Paul isn't propping up man. He's propping up God. And he's propping up the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners. And if God has saved you in this way and he's made you aware of it, well, that's the thing you'll see. You'll be amazed. You'll marvel that God has saved you. How is it that a great God... 
would save a sinner like me? How is it that the Son of God would shed his blood for a wretch like me? And yet the amazing thing is he's done it. And he's not only done it, but he's made me aware of it. Now I see it clearly. And the thing that I glory in isn't myself. It isn't my decision. It isn't my faith. It, it, it isn't even that I love God, though that is part of it, Paul says. It's God. It's the sovereignty of God. It's the power of God. It's the will of God. And do you understand when that's the thing you're considering? When you think of myself, I am a Christian, and you compare it to the plan of God, then you realize there is certainty. There is an unshakable certainty. There isn't anything that can stand in the way of the believer's justification. If God who justifies, who will condemn, Paul will later says. And if that is true, who will separate me from the love of God ever? And who will ever keep me from, from inheriting my inheritance and having a body like Jesus Christ on the last day? There's nothing that can because this is the plan of God for me. And so it is all of grace from first to last. It is, as Robert Haldane says, nothing but grace whether we contemplate its beginning, its middle, or its end. Is that, I ask you, the unmistakable impression that you have of the plan of God for the believer's salvation? That it is all of God and thus all of grace. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, the ultimate effect of it all is that it ought to humble you. It ought to make you feel your poverty. And it ought to make you thank God and glory and praise him. It is all to the praise of the glory of his grace, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. I wonder if that's how you feel about it. Amen. Let us come to the table.